There's not much to say to introduce this week's episode. We are going back to the infamous Missing 411 case files to dig up a few new missing persons cases that just don't quite make a lick of sense. These are always y'all's favorite episodes, so I hope you enjoy the collection I've come up with this week. Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, your favorite podcast about all them bad things in life. I'm your old buddy Brad, the host of this little cruise ship of terror or fun. I guess it depends on how maladjusted you are. I am hosting because, as I always like to remind people, I am a uh, veteran of the criminal justice system, having spent almost 10 years as a criminal defense attorney. So I think when it comes to true crime cases and things like that, I can bring a certain perspective that folks seem to appreciate. Having said all that, of course, we're not doing a true crime case this week. We are doing the ever-popular Missing 411 cases. Now, we've... I don't know... This this may be our sixth or seventh episode on this. I didn't go back and count because I'm not that good of a host. But I know these are among the favorites of y'alls, and I hope I've put together a collection that satisfies your appetite for weird missing purpose missing persons cases. If this is your first time listening to us and you don't know what missing 411 cases are. They are essentially missing persons cases that have a lot of weird facts to them. There are certain commonalities that have been identified and strung through. The term in these cases really can be attributed to David Politis, a former police officer turned private investigator who was kind of tipped off that missing persons cases within the National Park Service in the United States were not being reported on. And he began digging deeper and deeper into that and found that many of these cases not only are unreported, in his opinion, there was an active cover-up to try to make it seem like people don't go missing in national parks at the rate that they actually do. He's since spread out from there and started including cases beyond the national parks. He's published a series of books all in the title of Missing 411, each with a different subtitle. He uh, is a bit of a controversial figure. Some folks really want to ding him because when he left police work, he decided he wanted to hunt for and investigate Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot stuff. To me, that just lends more credibility. He's got a few documentaries you can watch. It's Missing 411. The second one's called Missing 411, The Hunted. And then he's got a new one that brings an alien aspect to missing 411 cases. It was uh, entertaining, I guess, if you just take it for what it is. But the second documentary is easily the best one. It's got some crazy stories in there. So um, if you're interested in this topic, I would encourage you to pick up some of his books. You can get them from his website, which is missingcanam.com. He does not sell on Amazon or through third parties. And so if you see him on there, they're usually at a giant markup. 
they're fairly reasonably priced at his website. I've got a few of his books. And he's, like I said, he's identified some commonalities between these cases. I won't go through them all, but you'll see a lot of time. Um, you know, he says he excludes any case where there's evidence of, you know, animals being involved, any evidence that the person at the time was depressed or mentally ill on drugs, on alcohol, you know, that would cause them to act in erratic behaviors, things like that. The commonalities typically involve uh, the person, their clothing going missing or being found away from the body, typically in an unusual state. Like oftentimes when we have cases where the clothing is found before the body, the clothing is neatly folded. There's these, you know, usually take place in national parks or in the woods. He's identified that many cases take place near large boulder fields or near bodies of water. There's almost always, there's, all, there's always some sort of hamper to the investigation, typically in the form of weather. You know, if a child goes missing at one o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day, then by that evening you'll have a massive storm come through for whatever reason. Search dogs can't pick up a scent. Um, when bodies are found or living folks are found who have been through this, they're typically either in a distance that could not be covered in the time frame. You know, there's there's one we covered in a previous episode where a child covered something, and, and a, a toddler, not just a child, a toddler covered something like eight miles and 12 hours across rugged, rocky, you know, uncivilized terrain. And uh, professional search and rescue personnel could barely cover that distance moving at top speed in good weather. Um, sometimes they are found in places that have been searched multiple times with the body just appearing there. Um, there's there's a whole list of factors, and I, I'm not going to go through them all, but um, you know, I would encourage you, listen to our first episode. I delve into the details a little bit more on it, or pick up one of David Politis's books, and he'll he'll no doubt go through it. He's also come up with a map um, showing where kind of the hot spots are, and they do tend to center around national parks. But it's the weirdness, it's just, you know, you hear the story, and every explanation you come up with, there's always a yeah, but piece of evidence to kind of contradict it. So they're fun stories, you know, other than the fact that somebody's gone missing or somebody's been found dead under bizarre circumstances. Um, so... That's what we got going on this week. I do have a little bit of business I want to get to before we get into the episode. I know I'm, I'm rambling an unusual amount. I always try to give a, a little bit of an intro to these episodes, as you all know. But we, if you will recall, many moons ago, we, we covered a case uh, involving the death of Tammy Haas. And we actually had to do a follow-up episode because we got additional information after we aired the initial episode. And for those of you that have been with me for a while, that was the one where the FBI actually called me 
to wanting to know where I got the information from. Very weird, strange case. The reason I'm bringing it up again is because a fellow podcaster uh, has reached out to me, and he is launching his own investigation into this case. He he is an attorney, I believe. He's hired private investigators. He's got he lives in the area, so he was able to get access to some of the initial investigation files and things like that. So he's launching a nine-part podcast on the Tommy Haas murder that starts on April 14th, which if you're listening to this the day it comes out, would be Friday. And I agreed, because I'm such a kind soul, to play a little commercial for him. So here's a little 30-second clip for his upcoming show. Um, it seems really interesting. He and I have talked multiple times and I really think he's approaching this from a solid angle and I'm really interested to see how it turns out. So I hope y'all enjoy it, but here's, here's the ad for his new podcast. Hey, KMH listeners, Brad brought you the story of Tammy Haas, the girl with the broken neck from Yankton, South Dakota. And now you can go behind the scenes with me, Chad Zimmerman, in a two-year investigation into her mysterious death, full of strange twists and turns, and an answer nobody saw coming. Oh yeah, her neck? It wasn't broken. Join me with the Footsteps in the Dark podcast, Season 1, Tammy Haas, which debuts on April 14th. Until then, check us out at footstepsinthedarkpodcast.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. So there you go. From what Chad's told me, he's dug up a lot of interesting information that's going to be kind of released to the world, um, at least in a wide format, for the first time uh, in his podcast series. So so check it out. I think it'll be very, very interesting. I'm excited to hear it. But that's not why you're tuning in today. You're tuning in for me. Me. <laughs> and the stories. I can share with y'all. So, I'm going to shut up, and we're going to get into this episode. All right. Yay. Now, I should have given the warning in the intro that this is an unscripted episode, meaning I'm just going to ramble on about the cases, and they'll either be like three minutes long or 30 minutes long each. So, God bless you listeners for putting up with me. We're going to start our journey into this darkness with the case of David Adams. This was an eight-year-old boy who went missing in May of 1968 from an area known as Tiger Mountain, Washington. Now, Tiger Mountain is more of a glorified hill, but it's still kind of wild land. It wasn't very, it was sparsely populated at this time. It was, you know, a lot more trees than people, a lot more gravel roads than real roads, things like that. Now, the Adams family, I just got that. But sadly, there's no Gomez or Morticia in this one. The Adams family moved there. The dad was in the Air Force, and so they kind of lived that nomadic lifestyle moving every few years. But they had decided that this is the place they wanted to, you know, regardless of what happened with dad's uh, uh, obligations in the military, this was the place they wanted to make their permanent home. And so they bought a plot of land up on Tiger Mountain and began building what they called their dream house and were able to move in in April of 1968. 
they were members of the LDS church, and so they had a community of friends and peers immediately when they moved to the area. On top of that, David apparently was a pretty friendly kid, and he made uh, several friends in school quickly. Turns out one of them also lived on Tiger Mountain with them. His name was Kevin Bryce, and so they became playmates. They lived that far from each other, despite, you know, this is one of those areas where everybody feels like they're in the middle of nowhere, but really your neighbors are kind of just over the next ridge. But they're hidden away by all these trees and and boulders and whatnot that kind of keep you hidden and, and feeling isolated. So on the late afternoon of May 3rd, David was at Kevin's house. They were playing and whatnot when David's mom called up the Bryce family and said, hey, I'm getting ready to finish up cooking dinner. Can you send, can you send David on home? And so, of course, you know, Mrs. Bryce said, of course, yeah, sure. Well, David and Kevin walked together about halfway to David's home. And they got to a spot, a uh, bridge. I think it's called the 15-mile Creek Bridge. And it was at that point they separated. It was more or less the halfway mark. And um, David took a shortcut through the woods that would have him end up landing in his backyard. Meanwhile, Kevin turned around and went back home. Fifteen minutes later, Mrs. Adams called again and said, Hey, has David left? And immediately the Bryces got worried because apparently it was like a five-minute walk from where he had separated from his buddy there, Kevin. And so they kind of panicked and let Mrs. Adams know that he should have been home by now. We, we sent him home immediately. Well, Mrs. Adams, you know, calls her husband, who's granted emergency leave to come home. He contacts... I guess the church elders and the church community comes together and, you know, within hours they've got a search party of about a hundred folks. So before David could go wandering off too far, we've got dozens of search parties out there combing through the mountains. The, of course the sheriff's office is called to, they pitch in, they bring over 4,000 professional and volunteer searchers on top of what the church provided. They got some Air Force equipment involved, probably thanks to David's dad. And, you know, this was these were helicopters equipped with special um, forms of radar that could help find people lost in the woods. Bloodhounds were brought out, you know, tons of law enforcement veterans. And these people spent five days basically nonstop tearing through this mountain. Now, again, it's more of a glorified hill. It's about 2,600 feet above sea level, which, I mean, that's half a mile. That's a decent size, but it's not like what you would see in the Rockies or whatnot. So this wasn't a situation where they needed, you know, expert mountain climbers or, or cavers or anything like that. The average person could join in the search and help poke around. And despite these five nonstop days, not a single bit of evidence of David was found. No footprints, no clothing, no nothing, nothing. 
In fact, a lot of the searchers walked away with the opinion that David was not on that mountain at all, that he had somehow gotten off that mountain, either through his own means or through the interference of others. Because, see, there was this... There was this fella known throughout Tiger Mountain known as the Strange Fella. And not much is known about him. There's not a whole lot recorded, but apparently he was the sort that even back in the 60s, parents would keep their eye on their children when he was around. And so, of course, police came down on him hard, interviewed him multiple times, Apparently, rumor has that he took a polygraph and failed, but there's no records to support that within the sheriff's uh, files on this case. Regardless, they weren't able to get anything useful out of him. There was nothing connecting David to his property. And they just didn't know where to go. And the search kind of ended. Um, it was very unusual because the bloodhounds never picked up a scent and these were bloodhounds. The, the trainer of them made a big deal to the press that they've never not found somebody, you know, they've always found the, the, the missing person, or at least the, the body of the missing person. And here never caught a single scent, nothing. And, you know, even after the official search was called off, there would still be informal searches that would go on throughout the mountains. Lots of the LDS community would, you know, spend a weekend just saying, let's give it another go. Boy Scout troops would, when they would go hiking and or hiking and camping in the area, they would be on the lookout for, you know, as morbid as, as say, David's remains. But... There was nothing, absolutely nothing. And the the real fear that Mrs. Adams had when she spoke to the press was, you know, this is our dream home. This is where we're going to live. But it keeps me up at night worrying that my other children will be out playing in the woods or picking berries and stumble across the bones of their brother. They never moved from the mountain. And as far as what David Politis has reported, they're still living up there, and they're still living up there without any idea of where David went off to. Now, one thing David Politis does, rightly or wrongly, is he, he draws a lot of parallels between this case and the case of Dennis Martin, which we had in our very first episode, because it's that was kind of the case that got me into the missing 411 stuff. Super, super, super brief overview of that case was Dennis Martin was with his family in the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. And he was with several... Um, other children, I believe they were cousins. This was kind of a Father's Day tradition that they'd always go hiking and camping up in the Great Smoky Mountains. And so the kids decided they were going to play a prank on the adults on the trip. They were going to hide and then jump out. Well, Dennis was sent 
kind of off by himself. He was six years old, and he was told to hide behind the certain rock. And when time came for everybody to jump out, Dennis just wasn't there. And what was so perplexing about that case is the kids weren't hiding for 20 minutes. It was one of those deals where the parents were walking up to the picnic area. They saw the kids disperse. They knew what was coming. And Dennis was literally out of sight for 20 or 30 seconds. And he was never seen again. And there were so many oddities about this search as far as weather conditions, as far as rumors of kind of, I don't know the right term, but Appalachian folks got involved and kidnapped the boy. None of, no, you know, there's no traces of them found. There's even these weird, bizarre rumors about the military sending units to search the area that never should be involved in search and rescue operations. And they came fully armed as if they were going into a combat situation. Now, obviously, we don't have that here. The parallels that Politis mainly draws is, you know, here... David goes missing in 68. Uh, Dennis goes missing in, I believe it was, um, yeah, 69. They both went missing at roughly the same time of day, around 5 o'clock. Uh, you know, they were both in a heavily wooded area. They both um, were, you know, living in... In a a family uh, environment, you know, a, a traditional nuclear family environment, and the case is still considered an open missing persons case. Honestly, I don't understand why David Politis draws the parallels, because we're on two different sides of the country. You know, Washington State and Tennessee really couldn't be much further apart. Um, One's in a national park, one's on private property. But, I mean, I do get it from the standpoint of the kids in both cases are gone in, what, in a time period that could be fairly measured in seconds when they're never seen again and no evidence is ever found of them again. And they've both been missing at this point, you know, over 50 years, coming up on 60 years. So, very odd that you would have that. Um, just two very strange cases. I can't tie them together like Politis can, but, but uh, you know, David Adams there just totally, totally vanished after leaving his buddy's house and was on a path. He wasn't just lost in the woods, you know. It was something he had traveled multiple times before. It was a shortcut, both he and his buddy knew, and he just never arrived at home, and we don't know why. We don't know why. Up next, we've got the case of Susan Seymour Adams. This occurred in September of 1990. 
in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness of Idaho. She was 42 years old, and she was on a trip with her husband. They were on a guided um, horseback trip through this wilderness for hunting. They both like to hunt. They uh, were out there, had their day, set up camp as the sun was setting on September 30th, and Susan decided she was going to take her camera and go bird watching, see if she could catch any birds that she was interested in. She took no other supplies. She said, you know, I'm just going to poke around the woods a little bit. I'll be back, you know, for dinner. And she was never seen again. Immediately, of course, once it started getting dark, her husband in particular and everybody else who were who was on this little trip kind of freaked out and started poking around. The leader of the trip was able to holler back at uh, park rangers who immediately got law enforcement and search and rescue personnel involved. For eight days, they searched this area. And... Just to clarify, you know, Susan's on foot. She's not on her horse. Again, no supplies, just her, her coat, and her camera, basically. And they find, again, nothing. Eight days they search, and the only reason they stopped searching on the eighth day is because it began to snow unusually hard. After the snow stopped, there was kind of a secondary search that occurred in October of that year. It only lasted two days before torrential rains came through and ended the search. The sheriff's office decided that it would be best at this point to wait until summertime to do another big search. So it was in July of uh, 91 that a third search was conducted, again, very organized, lots of people involved, lots of uh, equipment involved bloodhounds, all that stuff. They go through this area. And again, the radius of where she could disappear shouldn't be that large considering what her aims were. Just to take photographs of birds and with the goal of being back for dinner. Yet despite having all these experts on scene, people coordinating it, making sure that no stones left unturned, Nothing's found. Absolutely nothing was found. At the request of the sheriff in July of 1991, after the conclusion of that search, an Idaho district judge declared Susan legally dead with the cause of death being um, exposure. So, because of that, she's not listed in any missing persons databases because she's not a missing person. She's a officially a deceased person, and they've never recovered her body. One thing David Politis points out about this search that was, or about this situation that was unusual, is that this was a search that received national attention, so you had more than your average number of volunteers out there to help. And she went out there with no supplies, but she did have her camera. And he suggests that that is becoming 
a bit of a tell in these cases. He's seeing a lot of people who have cameras on them disappear where neither their bodies nor their cameras are ever recovered. So again, we have a woman out in the woods on a trip with her husband. If you're going to run away from home, this is not the ideal time to do it, you know, and she's just gone. Theoretically, she wouldn't be more than a few hundred feet away from from the campsite, and she disappeared without a trace, without any tracks. Camera's never even been found. So a short one here, but uh, definitely a weird one that I wanted to include. Up next, we've got another bizarre one. It's kind of short and sweet, but it it's... I don't know what to say about it. It's just wild. So this one takes place in Newton County, Arkansas. And let's see, April 29th of 2001. Six-year-old Haley Zaga. And her disappearance was such that it even got the attention of Dateline and other shows like that. So she was on a trip with her grandparents and they were going to the Upper Buffalo Wilderness Area. So this was an area that was designed to be a kind of a protective area, meaning nothing motorized could be used in this park. They didn't even allow bicycles in this park. It, you know, you, you hiked if you wanted to go somewhere here. So at approximately 1130 in the morning while camping out there, excuse me, while hiking out there, they were not camping. There was a, they were going up a path and uh, one of the grandparents mentioned to Haley that there was a waterfall near, nearby. Haley asked if they could go see it and the, both the grandparents agreed that no, it wouldn't be a good idea. It's, it's tough to get to it. It'd be a little dangerous. Haley, um, you know, she's six years old, so she reacts as a six-year-old does. She kind of sulks a little and kicks a rock and slowly starts falling behind and as she pouts. And, you know, typical behavior, nothing that you would find alarming. But as the grandparents kind of came up on a ridge, they turned around and waited for her to catch up, and Haley's not there anymore. She's just vanished. Immediately, of course, the grandparents start shouting for Haley, walking back down the path they came, looking over the edge of any embankments that were nearby, which just, this path didn't, you know, run along the edge of a cliff or anything like that. But no doubt there were going to be little depressions or whatnot. But they spend 90 minutes walking back and forth down this trail, yelling for Haley. They find nothing. So they go back to the parking lot and alert the rangers there who contact the Newton County Sheriff's Department. And they respond exactly how you would want them to. They show up with, um, you know, park service personnel, fire department personnel, National Guard personnel, and 200 plus volunteers. They also got helicopters in the sky. They had eight teams of bloodhounds. And they went all over this area. Again, a six-year-old girl, how far is she going to travel? Not very far at all. So the, really, their search radius shouldn't be very big. But 
any search and rescue personnel, they're going to go further than mathematically they should because people, you know, can beat the math. But they do this, they go everywhere, and nothing. Now, one of the bloodhound teams did pick up a scent. And they followed the scent, and the scent took them down from the preserve, the wilderness preserve, to a local highway. And then it ended. And so police immediately, you know, raised their eyebrows, got their ears up, and said, oh, my God, this child's been abducted. She wandered back to the road. Someone picked her up. We got to really expand the search now. The next day, the official search on the mountain or on the in the wilderness area ended, but unofficial searches were still going on. There were two folks on horseback who were searching the area, and they came to a spot that had been searched multiple times by multiple different groups, and they found Haley. This was 51 hours after she went missing. She was sitting on, you know, the, the banks of this little creek or brook, just kind of kicking her feet in the water. And they said, you know, she looked tired. She was tore up from branches and bug bites and things like that, but she was in really good condition. They go to her. She was fine. She could walk. You know, she could answer questions, all that stuff. But naturally, as you would do, they immediately threw on the horse and rushed her back to to the, the closest ranger station, and she was taken to the hospital, um, you know, had no problems really, didn't even have a, any dehydration or anything like that, but they still kept her for observation for a few days. Now, where this gets really weird, besides the fact that she was in a location that had been searched multiple times, it is the story that she tells. So, she told her parents that the first night she was missing, she slept on top of this bluff that overlooked um, the creek or what have you that ran through the area. Well, you know, law enforcement personnel say that's not possible because, again, we searched, and again, we had helicopters flying over that area with specialized radar designed to detect body heat. So they should have seen her if she was laying on top of a bluff like that. She said after that, um, she kept wandering along on her own when she came to a cave, and that's where she spent the second night. Now, she mentioned trying to climb these steep boulders that covered a hill, but she kept slipping off of them and falling back into the water. And... She said that it wasn't until another girl came along to help her that she was able to transverse these boulders. And David Politis has produced a copy of the transcript when she was interviewed by Dateline. And I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to summarize it. But she said the girl's name was Alicia and she was four years old. She had black hair and brown eyes. And, you know, as far as what they talked about, they sang songs, they joked around, they acted how you would expect two young girls to act. 
And she said that Alicia really helped her when it came uh, to walking around those boulders and going up and down the hills and things like that because she would keep an eye on where she was going. She would stay in front of her so she wouldn't sleep, slip and fall and generally served as a guardian until she was eventually discovered by the two folks on horseback. What's strange about this case is 23 years prior to Haley going missing, there was another little girl who went missing in this exact same spot who was found dead. This girl was four years old, and her name was Alana. Not Alicia, but Alana. So, this is one where you can go lots of different directions with it, right? Um, you've got the weird, you know, whole thing of she should have been found easily based upon her story. She never was. She was constantly missed, even by you know, technology. And then she tells a story about this little girl and it matches the description of a little girl who was went missing and was found dead 23 years before. You can make this into a paranormal story if you wish. Very strange case. Very, very strange case. Um, and, you know, it's, it's... She never could explain how she went missing. That was the one main question that she just didn't have any information on. She just was lost all of a sudden. She was not on the trail. She was out in the woods fending for herself. Which, again, doesn't make any sense because her grandparents are there right in front of her. They're on a clearly defined trail. And it's almost like she's teleported to another part of this wilderness preserve and then is guided to safety by this imaginary friend who just happens to match the description of someone that's that would be familiar with the park because she died there so uh yeah you can have lots of fun with that one that that's a wild story and when i saw it i I wanted to include it. I hope I haven't included it before, because at this point, I don't know what stories I've told y'all and which ones I haven't. But, uh, yeah. Fortunately, this one has a happy ending, just with some spooky aftertaste to it. Gonna do one more for y'all today. I don't want the episode to be too, too long. But this one, we're gonna travel up to Canada to Quebec, even more specifically, to Burnt Island, which is on Lake, Lake, Brad's going to mispronounce this, Lake uh, Timiskaming, again in Quebec. Uh, we go all the way back to 1913 for this case involving Grace Cooper, who went, who disappeared at age five. So this island is on the border between Ontario and Quebec. And it is 70 miles southeast of a town known as Timmins, which apparently is one of David Politis's hotspots. He's, 
he's identified it as a location where there's a lot more missing folks under weird circumstances than there should be. But this island, as I was saying, two miles wide at its widest point. And it's one that is very thick, especially at this time. It was very thick with vegetation, very difficult to transverse. And on the eastern side of the island, it had some cliffs um, that, you know, you could climb up and look down on the shore. Uh, or, you know, when you've got a five-year-old, you're terrified that, these cliffs would be what she would fall down and, and perish from. Now, the details involving how Grace got away are rather vague. And there's not a lot recorded. Again, this is over 100 years ago, so that's not shocking in and of itself. But her family was apparently visiting the island for the day when she went missing. They sounded the alarm around 1 p.m. and 80 people from the immediate area joined her family to search the south shore of the island because that's where the family was and they couldn't imagine that a five-year-old would willingly go into the deep of this jungle-like area. You would think she would stay in the beach areas where it's easier to walk and probably more fun. So that's all they really focused on searching was the South Shore, and they found nothing. And when I say nothing, it's even though there's sand and all that stuff, there's no footprints of hers leading away. On the fifth day of the search effort, a few teams decided that they would move on from the beach. And, you know, again, this isn't, we didn't have professional search and rescue teams necessarily. They're not very well coordinated, but, you know, these few teams kind of go rogue, I guess you would say, and leave the official search on the south shore. And they decide to follow, go up the east side of the island. And from what they, from an article in the Toronto World newspaper from August of 1913, they said, you know, they walked through places that only a professional strong man could fight their way through. They were cold. They were wet. They, there was no food in the area. They hadn't brought enough supplies for how long it was taking them to transverse the area. So they were getting hungry. And they were of the opinion that a seasoned explorer could easily get lost in these woods and die from exposure during the five days that Grace had been missing. While they were searching, a huge storm hit the island, making you know navigation and travel all but impossible and made the temperatures plummet. So wet, cold, not a fun experience. Just as they kind of reached the furthest point from where the camp was set up and kind of the point where they said, you know, this is as far as we can go before we got to turn around and get some supplies, they found Grace. And 
where they found her was rather unusual, according to, again, this Toronto World article. She was resting. She had her head on a log and her feet on a smaller log and was kind of stuck in this position. This is how they described it. As if, like, her feet, she had put her feet into the second log, perhaps, and couldn't get them free. It, 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 it's very unclear. Um, or the, the log was put on, was on top of her feet, but for whatever reason, she was stuck. Now, again, five years old, she's traveled through conditions that these explorers say an average person could not make it through. It's been raining, it's been freezing, and she's found alive in good condition other than she was stuck. Nobody knows how she made it across the island. Nobody knows how she got stuck. And she couldn't answer any questions about the situation. She just didn't remember was essentially how it was reported. It's considered one of the great search and rescue mystery stories of all time, apparently in Canada, or at least in Quebec. Because, again, nobody knows how a five-year-old could make this trip. Nobody knows how she could do it in the same amount of time or less time than seasoned explorers. Nobody knows how she could survive two days of being exposed to freezing rains and basically walk away without any significant injuries. The, the report didn't suggest that she was injured in any way. Maybe she was hungry. Maybe she was dehydrated, but they didn't get into those details. And it's kind of a celebrated story because it was such a miracle that she was found alive. And it's just, it's very curious to me, the, the part about her being stuck in the logs. She's stuck in a resting position and unable to free herself. Um, and again, there's just not enough detail provided to suggest, you know, was her head stuck? Was it just your feet stuck? Was both, were both ends stuck? If both ends were stuck, what are the odds that trees would fall over her? so precisely and in such a way not to injure her. And by the by, I didn't mention this, where she was found resting was less than two feet from the edge of the cliff on the eastern shores there. So just very strange all the way around. And for these this, this small team of explorers to go rogue and go against common sense and find the child in an impossible place. Really remarkable and, and very fortunate that she, she was found and she lived and survived that crazy ordeal. And we're going to end there. Um, I know I tend to ramble on these episodes where I don't have my notes in front of me and try to stick to what I've researched and what I've followed up on. Uh, all these stories came from 
David Politis, his book, Missing 411, The Devils in the Details. Uh, these are just four of the hundreds of stories he has in that book. And again, he's got, I didn't think to look, but eight or nine books out now about these type of phenomenon. Um, and so if you're interested, hit up his website. If you don't want to pay for it, most libraries seem to have a copy of at least some of his books. If you want to get started buying them, he's got two um, that came out at roughly the same time. One that focuses on the eastern half of the United States and one that focuses on the western half of the United States. Most folks agree those are the, you know, buy one of those books to get started with because they go into more detail about the history of what Politis has done and what he looks for in determining whether or not a case fits the missing 411 profile. Now, I will say, and we've had at least one episode that we've covered where he identified a case as a missing 411, when I looked into it and did research on it, it appeared to be a homicide case. There was a lot of evidence of foul play. Um, so, you know, again, Politis is a very controversial figure. He, a lot of people thinks he will cast a wider net than he needs to, so he has extra material for his books. Some people think he's just an outright fraud. I am of the opinion that he caught wind of something that was very interesting and has brought it to people's attention. I do think that he probably feels some burden that he has to carry on bringing us these stories and making sure they're a little bit more sensational than the last. Because honestly, you can go through his books. I know... One of the stories we've covered was, uh, I believe, a, a little girl who was um, kept alive by a family of bears, she said. Another had a little boy who was saved by his grandmother, but it was a robot, robotic version of his grandmother, and she got very upset at him for refusing to basically poop on a special piece of paper because he was too embarrassed to do it. There's stories even of adults who are lost in the woods. They will see search and rescue teams, and they will try to get their attention, and it's like they're invisible. Um, they just march on by without getting any help. So there's, I, again, I believe there's something to these stories. I don't know what I, you know, I'm, as longtime listeners know, I am more than willing to look at and accept bizarre explanations. Um, you know, I do like going through the evidence and seeing if there is an explanation for how these things go. Um, I have no doubt that several of the stories were no where, where the bodies aren't found, particularly of children, can be attributed to some sort of animal attack. I mean, I understand that an animal's, if an animal attacks, there's going to be evidence left behind. You know, they, they tend to go for the belly or the neck, and it's not like they drag off the carcass generally to hide it from people or whatnot. They eat what they can and then move on. 
some of these stories, though, just they just make you shake your head and you can't. It doesn't make any sense. And so these are just four more to add to our mini collection of Missing 411 stories. I hope you enjoyed them. Again, if you want books of your own, they're out there and they come from all different angles. Politis is really expanding out what sorts of cases he looks at. I think he's even got one book that tries to tie in the legendary smiley face killers into the missing 411 phenomenon. Haven't read it, so I'm speaking out of turn, but that's my understanding. Now, as you know, we can't call an episode official until we do our palate cleanser. And Mr. Joe, my youngest child, I think this was his. If, if it was one of Mr. Eli's, then I'm going to get fussed at. But I think it was Joe that brought this one to me. And so he gets all the credit for this one. What do you call a pig that knows karate? What do you call a pig that knows karate? It's a pork chop, of course. Come on, guys. That's a simple one. We threw you a softball. I also think it's Joe's because Eli's really focused on tying the joke to the episode, uh, whereas Joe just likes to share jokes as he finds them. So there you go. Enjoy your pork chop. Um, again, check out our friend's podcast there. Um, that Tammy Haas case is really interesting. I'm really excited to see what exactly has been dug up. Um, you know, Chad seemed, again, smart fella. He spent about two years doing an independent investigation on this case. And again, it's called Footsteps in the Dark. It's going to be premiering on April 14th, which again, if you're listening to this episode during release week, it will be Friday. And I think, you know, I, I have really high hopes for it. I hope y'all give it a shot. Lastly, just want to say thank you all to for supporting us in every way that you do. We live and grow by word of mouth. So if you like what we do, you want more of it, then please tell your friends. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review. Apple reviews, just to be bluntly honest, Apple reviews are the ones that get the most street cred out there, I guess. Um, and I think we're 12 away from having 200 Apple reviews. So if you haven't reviewed us on Apple and you could go out of your way to do that, I would appreciate it. Unless you're going to leave like a one or two star review, then you don't have to fool with it. Well, you know, we just want, we need to trick people into listening. And so five star reviews are appreciated for that purpose. You can also follow us on Instagram at kmh podcast there's i hate having to put that dot in there we're also on twitter not nearly as active because i just don't understand twitter uh at kmh podcast we are on facebook we have a facebook page it's facebook.com slash killing missing hidden in there you can join our private group you have to answer three questions they're very tricky very riddlish but if you can manage to overcome that formidable obstacle, um, we have a nice little group there where people share strange things, funny things. I do lots of the funny stuff. 
I'm certainly not alone in that. Um, but it's just a fun little community. And we do have our premium service, KMH Plus, where we try to release two bonus episodes each month, both of which are kind of off the beaten path from what we typically do. The one I've got ready to go for our next release is a really freaking bizarre one. So if you like Aliens, you're going to want to sign up before before we release that one. Um, it's $5 a month. You can cancel it any time. Uh, and it's all done through my podcast provider, Buzzsprout. There should be a link in the show notes to get you there. Other than that, thank you all for everything y'all do. We love y'all. We want you to have nothing but a splendid week because this happens to be my birthday week, so all should be well. This is the birthday week in my birthday month, so April is always a good month. This week in particular is an amazing month or an amazing week. So everybody shine like the star you are. Put on your best prince or princess face and outfits and go out there and just be the boss, man. Just own it. Live your life. Kick some butt. And that's all I got to say about that. So until I release our next episode, which hopefully will be in a week, y'all stay hip. This is Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.